2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 18. If you would please join with me in prayer, and then we will read the word of the Lord. Father, we come before you this day to hear you. Father, may your spirit open our eyes. May your spirit open our ears. And may our hearts be fertile to receive the word of God. Father, may it no longer be us who live, but you who live in us. Father, may we decrease, may you increase. And Father, we give you the praise for this amazing time, for this amazing day, and for the joy of our salvation, and for the privilege of being together in the body of Christ. Help us, Lord, to lean full weight upon you, to your praise and to your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Beginning at verse 6, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. <clears throat> but if the ministry of death and letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory... Much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. And are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened for this till this very day. At the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever the Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Okay, I entitled this series a number of months ago when we started into it, The Glory of the New Covenant. Okay, and when I looked at it, this text, and if you look at it, you will note that it is contrasting the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. It is contrasting the Old Testament to the New Testament. All right, when we think about covenant, when we think about testament, I want you to think of a promise. All right, when you see the word covenant, it is the covenant, it, it is a promise. All right, now understand that if you use the word testament and covenant are interchangeable, if I use that, then think of a testament like you and I deal with it. Last will in testament and when the death of the person and power of the testament comes into force then the promise comes into force correct so when you read verse 6 he says he has made us adequate as servants of a new covenant then this new covenant had to come in force by the death of the one who made the promise who was the one who made the promise jesus christ at his death you are now under the new Covenant. You are under the new promise. Okay? But as we've been looking at it, there's also another key word that we need to be looking at, and it is the word glory. Okay? When we think about glory, you probably have all kinds of little ideas that roll through your head. But what I want you to think about glory in the New Testament and in the New Covenant is glory is representative of the manifestation of the attributes of God. Okay? The attributes of God are now visible. They were visible at first in the person of Christ. I study my Bible to look into the face of Christ so that I may behold God. That is the single motivation for me reading my Bible. Did you know that? I have no other reason to read my Bible. I want to see the face of Christ 
So I will see the manifestation of God. I will see his glory. His glory is the visually abling of you and I to see who he is. His nature, his attribute, his characters. All right. So when you look at this text, you realize that you are looking at the glory, the manifestation of God in the new promise. All right. Therefore, simply, the new covenant is superior to the old. All right. And we're looking at Paul's final point. It is superior to the old because it transforms. Do you understand that the old covenant, the old testament had no ability to transform you into anything? Well, I guess technically it could. It could transfer you into a very miserable creature. But other than that, it had no other abilities. It showed you your fallenness. John Calvin called it worm theology. When I look at who the person of Christ is, I realize I am but a worm. All right. He is giving a defense to you and I this day for all of the true believers in Jesus Christ who are now the proclaimers of the new covenant. You and I are proclaimers of the new covenant. Verse six says we are made adequate servants. We are made adequate ministers of a new covenant of a new promise. The promise of Jesus Christ. Okay. Now we have to understand that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, had no ability to save. None whatsoever. Okay. Yet, it still has a glory. Again, what is glory? The manifestation of the attributes of God. You look at the moral law, you will see God. Okay, in his fullness. All right. And yet the old covenant, as Hebrews tells us, was fading. This text says it was veiled. There was a glory there and it's represented in the reflection on the face of Moses. But that glory had to be veiled. Why? We couldn't look at it. So the sons of Israel, verse 7, could not look intently. They couldn't gaze at it. Why? It was so bright, it would be like staring straight into the sun. Couldn't do it. Because it was a ministry of death, verse 7 said. It was a servant of death. It was a ministry of condemnation, verse 9 said. What... The old covenant did was to show you the degree of your depravity, your reprobation. It was total. It was absolute. It was complete. It was lacking nothing. Okay. Therefore. It makes mankind guilty. If you ever, if you listen to the arguments of atheists, you will hear that they are very adamant about it. Okay, that it's all random chance, and and everybody says, "Well, I just can't believe that they're that hostile about this non-belief thing that they have." What's their alternative? I want to live my lifestyle this way. If there's a God, then I am condemned. Therefore, I will act like there is no God. How would you expect them to act? If they buy into what you're saying, then they are guilty. So they will be vehement in there is no God. All right. When you look at false religions. What is their alternative? The condemnation of a holy, righteous God. So they will be vehement in their false system. Okay? The old covenant had no ability to save. And yet if you look at 
Orthodox conservative Jews today, they are vehement in it. Why? Still can't get saved. The new covenant yet abounds. The new covenant's glory, the new covenant's manifestations of the attributes of God abound because they give life. The attribute of God that gives life. The nature of God that produces righteousness. The person of God who is permanent. Yahweh who spoke existence into being brings hope. Christ of the new covenant is clear. Christ is the center of the new covenant because he is the fulfillment of the new covenant. And yet it is through the agency of the power of the Holy Spirit that we receive energy to even enter into the new covenant because that is what transforms us. It abounds. The new covenant does everything that the old covenant couldn't. I want to think about the spirit energized again because we looked at that two weeks ago. And it is the power of the new covenant. See, you do not see the Holy Spirit working in the old covenant. You see him intervening in the people's lives. But without the Holy Spirit power, the Holy Spirit's energy, the old covenant still don't work. And in the new covenant, you can expose people to the new covenant, but without the Holy Spirit's work, it is still futile. It is still futile. I I want you to think about something that I've watched the church. I don't think that the church initially and intentionally did this, but over the years has literally drifted away from the person of the Holy Spirit. Okay? When someone is reading the Old Testament, you will see that in the Old Testament, you'll see a word, and it's capital L-O-R-D. Okay? Every once in a while, you'll see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Okay? And for the most part, we don't pay attention to it. But the truth of the matter is, in the original language, those are different translations. Okay, they're different words. They will both be translated Lord, L-O-R-D. One is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Okay, one is Jehovah. One is the word that the Jews cannot say. Yahweh. Okay. Here's what has happened in the church today. We no longer look at the person of the Holy Spirit as Yahweh. The Holy Spirit is Yahweh. To a conservative Jew, you can't even say that. It's blasphemous to even say his name. You're not worthy. I watched the church in America today. When we look at the person of the Holy Spirit, he is no big deal. And yet I look at the Holy Spirit as Yahweh. I don't separate them. The same God who wrote the Old Testament, the same God who wrote the Old Covenant is the one who wrote the New Covenant, the New Testament. And he did it how? Through his Spirit. The same God who wrote the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the same God who condemns mankind by those Ten Commandments is the God who wrote the New Covenant, which redeems man who was condemned by his moral law. Same God. The same one who condemns the world, the same one who says, all born of man and woman, woman is guilty. Is the same one who in his spirit 
sets men free. The one who has the chains of law to crush humanity, to drive humanity to despair, is the same one who set men free. The same God, the same Lord, Yahweh, is the very Spirit who frees men from the prison of sin. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant, pushes man to despair. That he gets to the place where he pleads for mercy and grace. And the Spirit of the Lord is the saving power in any age that brings that freedom and brings that mercy and brings that grace. And that is before the cross and it is after the cross. People realize their sinfulness when the law does its work, when the law does its ministry. We understand how sinful we are. And there's a movement today in the church that says that we're not really sinful. We have sort of a moral neutral and circumstances in our lives force us into differing sin. That was disrupted in 400 B.C. or 400 A.D. as plagiarism. The same thing. And it was then as a heresy. Uh, we kind of blew it off. And then we had sort of a semi thing. And that, you know, man sort of has some good intentions, but sometimes gets into a pickle. And that's the same thing that you see that came out of the Arminius movement today, that man has this moral neutral will and he doesn't. Man is either a slave to sin or he is a slave to righteousness. And the rights and the will of a slave are what? They call it non-existent. People realize their sinfulness under the ministry of the law. Then that repentant heart comes for grace and mercy. And the Holy Spirit pours forth forgiveness. God's grace forgives and it's not deserved. That is the work of transformation. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. I see a lot of people who want forgiveness and no transformation. You can't have forgiveness without transformation. It's impossible. Absolutely impossible. Utterly impossible. Hear me that. You may feel guilty. You get caught with your hand in the cookie jar. Oops. Forgive me. But without transformation, there is no forgiveness. The new covenant is the work of Christ. The work of Christ was so powerful and so massive that it was retroactive. The repentant sinner comes to the throne of God, begs for mercy, and the transforming work of the Spirit forgives them. Salvation any time. Old covenant, new covenant is always a work of the Spirit. That is in the Lord. Look what he says. The Lord, the Spirit. When it comes to salvation, who saves you? God, the Son, or the Spirit? Yes. And it is the best two out of three. It has to be a unified work of the Godhead. And if it isn't, you're not saved. If you just felt guilty and you want your conscience appeased, That is not salvation. Please hear me. If you think walking an aisle and saying a prayer was salvation, you have not read your Bible. There has to be the burden of the law driving me to despair that I beg for mercy and grace. In that repentant action, the Holy Spirit has cut the heart. So it is now ready to receive. Receive what? Him. 
It receives Him. It isn't a reflection. It is Him. The same God who wrote the law is the same God who frees the repentant sinner from the bondage of the law. I have set you free. There is no longer death. A Christian cannot fear death. It is impossible. Why? Death is a reward. Death gets me out of this vessel that is such a torment to me. And I stand in His presence. My faith is now sight. You don't come about that on your own. You don't wake up one day and say, well, I just ain't afraid of dying now. Really, go stand out on a railroad track. I guarantee you will. When we looked at the Old, per, the Old Testament and His work, we seen that the Old uh, Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was involved in creation. Remember, He took all the material that Jesus Christ brought together by God's plan, and He was hovering on it, and He brought it to form. Okay? But we also see that in the Old Testament, that the Holy Spirit empowered people. Samson, Gideon, you see David. Um, you see the craftsmen who were working on the implements for worship. You see it all over the place. Okay, but you also see it in Revelation. The Lord came upon Isaiah. The Lord came upon Jeremiah. The Lord came upon Ezekiel, Daniel. But you also see him in rebirth. Uh, theologian calls it regeneration. See, did you know that the Old Testament believers... You, we're all Baptists. They all had to be born again. The Old Testament saints all had to be born again. I remember people who would come and say, well, you're a Baptist church, but you never mentioned being born again. Sorry, I didn't mention the blood either. Sorry. You know, but that's, that's the thing. You know, you got to have the blood and be born again. All right. When I look at born again or regeneration, I look at be made new. Okay? Now think about this. When the Holy Spirit was hovering over its formless and void, He brought it into form, distinction, creation. Right? What does He do in the new creation? What does He do in the new believer? It is... Formless and void, and He forms it. It is a new creation. That's what Pentecost is. Look, a new creation. What is it? The church. The ecclesias. The called out ones. Transformed by the power of God in the person of the Holy Spirit. Okay, now listen. You have to understand this, and, and I, I watch people who struggle with it, and, and I'm not really sure why. Well, I am, but... In Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 10, he says, It is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Okay, just in case you thought maybe you had something. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. Okay? There is none who seeks for God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become useless. Okay? Do you understand who they all are? That would be they all. Okay? There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and their tongues, they, with their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their path, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Okay. Paul at the end of verse three or end of chapter three is basically saying, here are those who have been exposed to the Bible. Here are those who have never been exposed to the Bible. Oh, by the way, they all fall into this summary. There is none righteous, 
No, not even one. Okay? That's what he's saying. That is what is called the doctrine of total depravity. And I watch people struggle with this. And I say, turn on the news. Tell me you don't see total depravity. Okay? Now, it doesn't mean that each of us works out to the fullest degree of our depravity. But that's why if you look around, why do we have so many laws? Why? Because we are depraved. We are sinful in our very DNA. Here, let me give you another text, just in case you're thinking, well, but is that really what he means? Yeah. Let's go to Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. Verse 6. For the mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. Sounds pretty straightforward to me. It does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, I, you, I don't think you have to be a Greek scholar to read that and understand what he's saying. Okay, when you and I at any given moment set our things on our flesh, do you realize what you just did? You became hostile to God. Now, I'm not a deep theologian, but I'm thinking that that's a losing proposition. You can be hostile to God till the cows come home, but you know what? You still lose. That says that humanity, I don't care who you are, without divine intervention of the person of the Holy Spirit, you have absolutely no ability to change. None. That is how every man, woman, and child is on their own. Do you understand that? I watch people say, but but I'm trying. There's the problem. But I want to be better. There's the problem. You can't. I don't even care if you've got the manual. The Pharisees had the Bible. And God stood in front of them. They didn't know it. How can man on their own do anything for God? And yet, you know what? They're lined up to do for God. Go look at our churches today and tell me what you're seeing. Okay, so when I look at the person of the Holy Spirit and I think about his transforming work, one of the first things that I realize he does, you can take it all the way back to Genesis 6. My spirit will not always strive with man. There comes a point where God says, enough of that. So when he does that, he is convicting of sin. Why is it you believe you need to do that? I know Christians who line up to convict other people of their sins. You know what's amazing about that? Not my job, man. God, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. All I have to do is point out, you know what, I think that's sin. You know, it's like I was teaching our Sunday school today. Uh, on the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of rest. It is easy to spot somebody who ain't resting. And all I have to say is, are you resting? Okay, if you're anxious about something, if you're angry about something, if, if you're nervous about something, if you're worried about something, guess what? You ain't resting. And if you ain't resting, guess what? I can spot it a mile away. Why? Because all of humanity ain't resting. You look like everybody else. Then how in the world do you get Psalm 119 where it says, I love the Lord, I love his word. 
His law is my delight. How do you get that if you have total depravity to start with? Transforming work of the Holy Spirit. He transforms it. He transforms total depravity to total righteousness. And you know what you do to it? Nothing. You can't add a thing to it, people. And bless your heart, some of you try so hard. It's just like today. The Old Testament and the New Testament, people are transformed. It's transformed by the person of the Holy Spirit. Humanly, there is no capacity to change. God has to change them. Hebrews 11, the Faith Hall of Fame. All those people, heroes of the faith, are examples to us on how to walk and to live in faith. How does the life of faith look? And, and he concludes it with, we have such a great cloud of witnesses. Remember a couple of weeks ago when I looked at John chapter 3, verses 3 through 6 on Nicodemus? Okay, do you understand that that is old covenant teaching? What must I do to be saved? What did Jesus say? You must be a Baptist. No, he... <laughs> You must be born again. Okay? That's before the cross, people. You must be transformed. Jesus hadn't died. Hadn't rose. Hadn't ascended. And yet, he told it to Nicodemus. And Nicodemus understood it. But Nicodemus says, I have years. I have decades Of these righteous deeds. And you're telling me they are of no value? Yes, absolutely. Of no value. It's funny. The old covenant conversation had to be born again. After the cross or before the cross. You have to have a new birth. You have to be transformed. Now, do you see why I get into trouble when I say, well, you don't look saved. Well, you don't know my heart. You're right. And I'm grateful. But I know your actions. Okay, and if your actions look lost, perhaps you should look at the heart. Do you understand that if that does not take place, there's a phrase in that conversation with Nicodemus that we miss at times in verse 8? You must be born again. And we all sit there and go, well, you know, you got to start all over and all the rest of it. Do you understand that Jesus makes a statement there that is so emphatic that people just miss it? And it says, if you're not born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Do you know what that means? You will pay the penalty for your sins. You get the bill. I don't understand it. I watch people who fight with the things that God say. And I'm sitting there going, do you realize how stupid that is first? Second, do you know what that's saying about what you're showing other believers of your heart condition? Well, God says I shouldn't do that. But I think that in this day and age. I I knew a lady one time who was adamant about walking with Christ and this, that, and the other. And, and she had the heart of an evangelist. And her neighbor, she loved her little neighbor, daughter, kid. And her little neighbor, daughter, kid, she did some kind of thing. And, and she she said she got saved. And then she went off to college and immediately moved in with some guy. And she's, well, well, in God's eyes, they're married. Have <laughs> you asked God about that? And, and that's how she, she rationalized it. I'm sitting there going, that action doesn't say salvation. Well, but, you know, if, if you've had sex, then you're already married. 
Do you see what I'm trying? That well, yeah, I thought. Dude, if I'd have known that, I could have saved myself an awful lot of grief. But you see what I'm trying to get at? That's that's just sort of well, it's not that big a deal. No, 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 it is a big deal. You know why does God not want us to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever? Because he's mean. Well, how does he know that that unbeliever won't get saved through me? Because I have never seen it happen. Okay? And here's the thing. I've watched this. If the person is willing to break God's law on dating the unbeliever, then when it comes to trying to serve two masters, which master wins? I've already shed my master on the first command. The second one's going to be a piece of cake. Right? This, I want you guys to get a hold of this because without the Holy Spirit energizing, guess what? It don't happen. And the first time you start saying, why? You can know for a fact and take this to the bank. You're not following the power of the Holy Spirit. Because you know what I learned about God? He don't have to tell me why. That's why he's God. I'm not. So when I look at the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer in the old covenant, I see that he revealed truth. What does he do in the new covenant? I look in the Old Covenant and I see that He convicts them of sin. What does He do in the New Covenant? Convicts us of sin. little footnote on that. It doesn't say you convict of sin. The Holy Spirit does it. You know what I like about the Holy Spirit? I can preach a message and part of my message may convict you of a sin. But what's really cool... The Holy Spirit will convict you all day long, all night tonight. Even when you're sleeping in your dreams, He'll convict you. When you get up in the morning, He'll be right there going, you know, and I just think that's the berries. It takes such a burden off of me. In the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit would also transform the person. That that person now has the energy and the ability to obey God, to love God, and to hate their sin. How many of you got up this morning and said, Lord, today I want to hate my sin? I can honestly say that in my years of walking with Christ, I've never prayed that. Why? Because he's always managed to get that done without me asking. There's another thing that the Holy Spirit did in the Old Covenant is that the believers were kept in his power. If he transforms them, he would preserve them. Okay? Think about Samson. There's a godly man, huh? Born under a Nazarite vow. And every man says, that means I can grow my hair. Yep. And you got to stay away from women and you can't eat sweets and you can't stay in with liquor and you can't do. And and yeah, you can have long hair. I remember a guy had a ponytail one time. He said, well, I'm under a Nazarite vow. And I'm, I said, I don't think so. Why? You married? Uh-huh. You ain't under a Nazarite vow. <laughs> Bummer, dude. So get your hair cut. No. Um. You look at the depravity of Samson. Okay? And yet, was he not kept? You see the empowerment. I mean, you know, taking the uh, gates off the city and carrying them up the hillside and all the rest of it. Yeah, that's, that's strong. And whipping Philistines with the jawbone and things like that. Well, that's a, I still like the foxes. We tied all the foxes together with candles like that in there. That's that's slick here. <laughs> I I just like seeing catching foxes. But anyway, um and then turn them loose in the look or fire. Um 
And the fox is probably hating him to this day. The fox tremble at the sound of Samson. But uh, you think about it when he was in the Philistines' palace. He said, God, what? Give me strength to do this. And he destroyed all the royalty of the line of the Philistines. All in one fail swoop. King David. A man after God's own heart. That's what God said of him. Has an adulterous affair, gets busted, and has the husband murdered to cover up his tracks. And in Psalm 51, he's reflecting on that. The murder of Uriah and the adultery with Bathsheba. And you know what he says in there that you and I should pay attention to? Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You know what? We, we got a song. Well, create in me a clean heart, O Lord. But you realize what you're saying? I can't do it, Lord. You can give me your Bible. I can do daily devotions. I can pray at sunrise, noon, sunset. I can read Old Testament, New Testament. And guess what? I still can't do it. It is God who does it. Ask for divine intervention. David understood that the source of cleansing came from God the Spirit. Purity, holiness, sanctification. Now, I want to show you something because we sometimes kind of miss some of this. And I want you to think about this. When you think about holy, when you think about the sanctification and salvation, most Christians jump immediately on, I have no ability to save anybody. I was sharing this morning, uh, I've been dealing with this guy, I work on his motorcycle. He's a, an Austrian artist. And, and, and he, he calls me Reverend. He knows what I do for a living, my, my real job. And, and I've known him for a couple, for a few years actually. And, um, and he says, the other day I see him and he says, I have to ask you a question. And I said, what's that, Otto? He says, how's come you're not trying to get me saved? And I said, well, Otto, I can't save anybody. And he about fell off his proverbial horse. He says, well, every Baptist I've ever run into is trying to get me saved. That's why I couldn't even get me saved, let alone you, Otto. And so now he's got a new preponderance. He's trying to figure out, what in the, what the heck kind of preacher are you? You're not getting nobody saved. Okay. I'm, I'm lame. Um, but I watch us try to do that. All right. And, and it gets hit in your head that you're, you're supposed to be evangelizing, handing out tracts and, you know, and convicting a sin that I've showed you that you're not supposed to. Okay. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, um, there is a text here of a parable. And it said, uh, Jesus speaking to a large crowd, beginning in verse 5, The sower went out to sow his seed, and he sowed, some fell on the road. And it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. The other seed fell on rocky soil, and soon it grew up. It withered away because there was no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it, and it choked it. Other seed fell on good soil, and it grew up, produced crop a hundred times as great. And he said, these are the things he would call out. He who has ears, let him hear. Okay? And disciples began questioning him. What was the meaning of the parable? Okay? Jesus says this. To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest, it is a parable. So that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now, this is the parable. The seed is what? The word of God. Those beside the road are those who heard. And when the devil comes, takes away the word from their heart so that they do not believe and be saved. The rocky soil are those when they hear, receive the word with joy. These have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time. Of temptation, they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns, these are those the ones 
who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches, pleasures of this life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed, now read verse 15. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and a good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Now, wait a minute. We just went through the doctrine of total depravity. Where do I get honest and a good heart from? None seek after God. No, not one. None do good. No, not even one. So where do I get this heart that has honest and good? Where do I get that? Where did that come from? Who is that people? Okay, understand this. In this parable, what is the soil? It has to be the heart of man. Has to be the heart of man. Who has a good heart? Jeremiah says it is deceitful and de- desperately wicked. Who has an honest and good heart? No one does good. No, not one. There's no such thing in existence as a good and honest heart in humanity. Unless. The soil is prepared by the Holy Spirit. You ever thought about that? We get ready to do our Romans road of evangelism or 12 points of whatever this or that or tulip or the question marks and all the rest of it. And very seldom are we willing to pray that God and the Spirit would prepare that soil to receive that word. Because with, do you realize that? Do you understand that? You and I cannot prepare the soil. God does. All we do is throw the seed. That's all we do. Just throw the seed. There's no theology to it. Just throw it out there. It's all out there. Why? That's all you're supposed to do. The Spirit prepares the soil. The Spirit gives the fruit and or the lack of fruit. You know, it's funny because we look at a successful ministry today and we say, well, you know, Billy Graham, there's tens of thousands and everybody come forward and they're weeping and they're crying and they all want Jesus and all the rest of it and all the rest of it. But you're saying that Ezekiel was a failure. I can't see where Jeremiah won one person into the kingdom. How would you like to be the author of a book called Lamentations? I'm going to write a book of lamenting. Isaiah was a failure. Because all he did was proclaim the glory of the second coming of Jesus Christ to the condemnation of Israel. But if you have preached the gospel unwavering, and all the ears that ever heard you deny Christ, then you have as great a glory as anyone who has won one soul. Because God is glorified. Remember what glory is? His manifest attributes. And his, one of His manifest attributes is His wrath. Salvation assumes divine intervention. One who heard the word in a prepared heart of soil, they bear fruit and they persevere. I have, I can't even count to you the number of people who have heard me proclaim in season and out of season, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and for years hang tough and then walk away. Divine power, divine operation. Work of the Holy Spirit is brought to form this new creation. So he does it with the new birth. You're born again by the Spirit. And salvation is not by might. It is not by power. It is by his Spirit, says the Lord Zechariah. Spirit is there in life. 
He remains. He keeps us. In the Gospel of John, chapter 14, beginning in chapter 13 is what is called the Upper Room Discourse. And it speaks of Jesus telling his disciples, okay? He's telling his disciples that he is going to leave, but he will send another. In chapter 14, verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. And he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him. But what? You know him. Okay, now, here's the key. Old covenant, new covenant. Old covenant, you know him. New covenant, you receive him. Huge difference. Huge difference. I know him. I have seen him move. I have seen his craftsmen. I know of Samson. I know of Gideon. I know of Jephthah. I know of King David. New covenant, you now receive him. Verse 17. Look what he says. Receive him because he does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides. He remains with you and he will be with you. You are kept in the person of the Holy Spirit. Verse if you drop, but go back over to John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38. In the last days, great day of feast, Jesus stood crying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to what? They weren't going to know. They were going to receive. There's three stages of this. Joel chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches this. He says there will come a time. All right, and I'm hang on to that thought. There will come a time when your daughters and sons will prophesy and bring forth great gushes of the Holy Spirit. But he makes a key statement there that everybody keeps thinking that that's today. Okay? You know what he says in that time? You know what that time is? The day of the Lord. You know what that is? That's the conclusion of the seven years of tribulation. It's the day of the Lord. Okay? And then Jesus sets up his earthly kingdom for a thousand years. Okay? So you have those in the old covenant who had re, who knew of the Holy Spirit. They understood it. They read Genesis. Then you have the new covenant. And that's the people who now receive the Holy Spirit. He is in us. Remember Moses' veil? And it reflected because he knew. The new covenant now is like the transfiguration. Pull back the veil of humanity. What do you got? Okay. But in the day of the Lord, there is the fullness of the Spirit. And that's when there is no sunrise and no sunset. In its full glory forever and forever. That's on the horizons for us. And that is when you will see the Spirit gush from the inner part of mankind and be fountains of living water eternal. That's why last Sunday when I said you and I have more in common with the transfiguration than we do with Moses on Sinai. There's coming a time in the future when we will be absolutely complete. We will have the complete fullness of the Holy Spirit. We're not lacking him now, but we do have a barrier. Our flesh. The old covenant people were saved by the Holy Spirit. And the old covenant they were kept by the Holy Spirit. And the old covenant they were assisted by the Holy Spirit. In the new covenant you are saved by the Holy Spirit. In the new covenant you are kept by the Holy Spirit. But 
In the new covenant, the Holy Spirit comes inside in a fullness that was not known by the old covenant saints. That's when you become one body. The manifestation of Christ. That is what is Paul's getting at in 2 Corinthians 3. You see the work of the Holy Spirit, it's not different in kind, but it is different in degree. Now, I want to close with one thought that will set the stage for next Sunday. Turn to the Lord's Prayer. That would be John 17. The Lord's Prayer is John 17. It's a little longer than what you're used to. In John 17, Jesus starts in John 13 through 16 to explain. It's called the Upper Room Discourse. And he's explaining to his disciples there in the Upper Room just before he's arrested on that he's going to die. He's going to raise from the dead. Okay, but he will ascend to the right hand of the Father and he will send him the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance all the things that I've taught you and how Jesus is basically saying, you know what? This is going to break your heart for me to be murdered. But it, it will be to your benefit that I ascend and the Holy Spirit comes and is with you always. All right. Now, then, when you look at John 17. You can break it down into three sections. Okay, the first part, Jesus prays for himself. Look how he begins it. Jesus spoke, verse 1, Jesus spoke these things, lifting his eyes to heaven, and he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. What did I say glory was? Manifestation of the attributes of God. Okay, so in John 17, 1 through 12, Jesus is praying on this foundation. That the manifestations of the glory of God would be seen. Okay, beginning in verse 13. He prays for those in the upper room that is with him. Okay, now... But now I come to you and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Okay, he knows this is going to be bleak for these guys. I don't want their joy to be bleak. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Okay? As you sent me in the world, I send them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify them, sanctify myself, that they themselves will be sanctified in truth. I do not ask. Now then, in verse 20 through 23, he's praying for you and me. Okay, set them apart, cleanse them by truth, sanctify them in truth. What? Your word is truth. All right. And I'm sending them out. I don't ask you to take them out of the world, but I want them to take truth into the world. Why? So it'll touch you and me. All right. So now then Jesus asked that he be glorified as the father is glorified. Was that answered? Some of you are saying maybe it's a trick question. I know it's a trick question. It's a real simple question. Yes, he was glorified. Second, do not remove them from the world. These are in this upper room. I need them to take my truth to Samaria and Judea and to the ends of the earth. Okay, has that been answered? All right. Verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. Who's that? You and me. Okay, that they, okay, who is they now? Those who would hear by the word. Remember, soil was prepared to receive 
the word. Holy Spirit work, all right? That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Stop right there. Who is they in that verse right there? It's us. That we will be one as Christ and the Father are one. And that we would be one in Christ the Father, Christ the Son. Right? What he says. So that the world may believe that you sent me. There is the single greatest evangelistic tool in the world. The unity in the body of Christ. I have watched this. I've seen it in Burma. I've seen it in India. I have seen it in in Russia. You can go there, not speak that language. You proclaim truth. And those who believe in truth are one with you. There are no arguments. So that the world may believe that you sent me. Now read on. What does verse 22 say? The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. Okay, do you under note that that is past tense? What is glory? Manifestation of the attributes of God. The manifestation of the attributes of God that was given unto Christ. What has Christ done? We're not as confident saying that, are we? (laughs) The manifest attributes that you see in the person of Jesus Christ that shows you God, Christ has done something with them. What has he done? That you may behold as in a Mirror the image of the glory. Simple question. Was his glory manifested that he prayed for for himself? He kept the disciples so that the word would go through all the ends of the world. Was that answered? What do you do with the third one? The manifest attributes of God are where? We'll pick this up next week. Father, we come before your throne, the author and the finisher of our faith. You have done exceedingly abundantly beyond all I could ever imagine or think. Father, as I read this, I am overwhelmed. Father, I pray that each of us, beginning with me, bow our knee that we would no longer be seen. But all that would be seen in us would be the glory of Christ. Father, help us. Help us be in the oneness that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have. And into the world we know we are yours. In Christ's name, amen.